Hey, hello, my lovely podcast friends. How are you doing? How's your life going on? How is the momentum of profitability and high energy moving towards you? I sincerely hope you are doing fine. If not, let me know. I mean, I look forward to hear back from you. You can tweet me at Lodewijkhoff. You can leave a message on hofprofit.com. And don't forget, next to the extreme crypto profits, you can also simply profit from the Brexit. Always lovely, always fun. Um, having it said, then it's time to have a quick look what's happening. Yesterday, it was the day that in Eindhoven, the town I spent most of my life with and have a small fight with the government with uh, celebrated its liberation from the German occupiers. The Second World War was ended and the tradition started with, it's called the light tour. It's basically a tour around Eindhoven with lights. It started with Philips who said at 45, well, the war is over, over for, in Eindhoven for already a year. The Netherlands, the European part was liberated, our colony, our pro area for profitability in Indonesia, Dutch India called, was liberated. It was just, the war was over, it was peace, happiness, so as Philips, thanks to the ceiling of intellectual property, got really big into the lights, they set up a tour around Eindhoven to honor those who fought on the, on the correct side in the Second World War. It's only a small pity, in my opinion, that... Until now, we always forget the Soviet Union. I will not say that Joseph Stalin was a great guy. I will not say that he is a defender of democracy. I simply say he defeated, he de on his side, he defeated the Germans and Nazis at the same time. Does it mean that the Germans at this moment have to feel sorry what happened around that time? No, they should not. I mean, who can do anything against it? But they organized a big tour. Uh, what they basically do, the... One year before you leave your high school, all the kids from Eindhoven and the Eindhoven high schools go to France. There the, the Liberation Army landed on the beach and they're gonna go there, they're gonna talk, visit the museum. And also this party side did it. And I must admit that as I'm party sided, they gave me special treatments and I was really spoiled. And when we came back, I was at the scouting, they simply gave me my scouting clothes and said, well, get in the bus, you have to go to the border and walk back. And it took us four to six hours. I'm not sure about how long it was, but we walked the tour just back. It's not a big thing. Yeah, but yesterday, the mayor of Eindhoven, Jon Jorisma, he is on Twitter, on at jjorisma040, had uh, his conference. He, he could say his thing. And he's coming from Friesland. When he was in the, in the state of the north, he got a cultural European uh, celebrity and activity to Leowarde. And I must admit that at first it looks really great. But when the big uh, shortages in the budget and his lack of balancing a budget came up here, he simply moved away and now he's the mayor of Eindhoven. Always fun. And the terrible thing is that he talked about... The celebrity, the celebration, of, uh, uh, and he said that we all have to be together, and all the same political correct issues as you expect every year, and the people say every year. And he was so smart, and it was really smart for him. So no, it is not to talk about the celebrity, the celebration of liberty and freedom, in combination with the MA17. So the wife of the co-pilot is happy that some people in the eastern part of Ukraine and in the Donbass shot the aircraft down so that her husband died. You know which woman I mean I refer to. 
at the memorial service for the victims of the MH17, she finishes work by thanking the people flying Malaysian Airlines, announcing the weather, and hope to see, and hope to see them back again on board soon. She is happy what happened. That's basically what the mayor says. So I don't know what's happening, but is she sometimes mentally ill, or is she just incompetent, or does she really think that this is a great thing? I mean, the prime minister is from the same party, and he said that they will investigate everything. Well, until now, the only thing that I think that I see is a cover-up, a cover-up, and a cover-up. So the promise that they will investigate everything is not that hard. Maybe it's just uh, maybe it's something that the members of them that party have. I don't know. I'm just wondering. But if you look in Eindhoven, it was always a big thing. There was a parade with uh, being transported the soldiers who liberated Eindhoven, and then with army vehicles and the army was there. Uh, every sport group, school, scouting, everyone, everything you can imagine was there, and they were told they were marching, and but only the tr the uh, the. It took between the 30 and the 45 minutes, roads were closed, and no one had a big problem with it. It is no problem. I mean, the fact that I can say this without be, without having the fear of being shot. Okay, I am afraid for the government, and I'm afraid that they're going to shoot me down. But the fact that I, that I should be supposed to say this simply means that they did a great job. And as a party-sided guy with really saying a lot of things and making saying everything, I can imagine at least 12 reasons that the Germans would kill me. Seriously, just 12. Not much, just 12 reasons to kill me. But it was a big thing, it took 30 to 45 minutes. Well, now with our six jeeps, a few trucks, some people on the bike, going. No need to uh, close the roads, I mean... Even the city buses uh, for the public transport are all going. But when there is a marathon and they are running, then the city buses are not going. So, this young Jorotsma and the city of Eindhoven say that basically celebrating freedom and liberty is not important enough? I don't know. It's just for me something something that I'm wondering about, and I really, really, really are unhappy with this because we thank so much to so so many brave people. We thank so much to them, but apparently the city of Eindhoven does not agree. It always then I always would simply ask a question: For what did all those brave people die? For what were all those lives being shot into pieces? For some bricks? For a person like John Yorsma who could spit on a grave? I don't know. I sincerely hope not that it's, uh, it's that this is what they gave it up for because then it's not worth it. And it should be worth it. I mean, speaking out, standing up for freedom and liberty, I don't say that it has to be tough. I don't say that it has to be easy. It can be tough, but it's only the right thing to do. It's just a pity that in the city of Eindhoven they ignore so many times the right thing to do. Yeah, well, it's a sad thing, but it's time to move on with the show, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed the show. And um, what you think about the last segment, you can tweet me at Lodewijkhoff, and I will try to get my hands on the mirror's comments. So, let's move on. Um, to be said, yeah, I'm still a bit angry about it. I should not be, but it's just those people gave so much, and if this is the way they are treated by the mayor, then it's terrible, just terrible. 
Well, having it said, uh, time to move on. Um, we got an I got an interview with John John Rubino. John is editor of DollarCollapse.com. He is engaged in a lot of great, interesting things. He will introduce himself, and we are going to talk about the dollar, the way we are now treating the world, towards where we are heading. Is the world what and what will happen from the collapse of society, or when the dollar will lose its world reserve status, and also about why and what to benefit from it and how to protect yourself because the, he and I agree on the thing on the fact that this is gonna happen and we know for certain it's gonna be like hell seriously hell so how could you survive on it and thrive on it because every you could doom and boom is a re, is a matter of effect doom and boom investing is something I really believe in but you should get ready for it prepare yourself and do it uh, well, here is John, and I would say, let me know what you think about it. Tweet me at Lodewijkhoff. Okay. So that's it. That'll be fine. Okay. So, John, a uh, very warm welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Lodewijk. It's great to be here. And it's an honor of me to have you. Um, for our listeners, would you mind sharing who you are and what you are doing? Sure. I um, Well, I'm a former Wall Streeter. I used to be a financial analyst. And uh, for the past 20 years, I've been a writer. I've done four or five books on um, investing. And a couple of them have been on very gloom and doomy subjects, which is some of what we'll cover today. And I run a website called uh, dollarcollapse.com, which is basically a... Um, continuously updated site covering the dark side of the financial world. In other words, the uh, the many, many financial crises that we're creating the conditions for as we borrow too much money and, and make other financial mistakes, uh, I'm chronicling that process. And uh, with the expectation that uh, a gigantic financial crisis is coming our way that's going to be focused on the world's currencies. So a major currency crisis is coming, and how do we protect ourselves from something like that, which is really unique in most people's experience. And why do you think that there will be a major global currency crisis? Well, we're, we're making all the mistakes on a global basis that individual mm -hmm. countries have made in the past. In other words, um, during the course of human history, many, many countries have decided to try to create too much currency. And, and in other words, have the government grow mm -hmm. to the point where it, it can't finance itself just through taxes. So it debases its currency by either creating more or diminishing the quality of the existing currency. And that has always and everywhere led mm -hmm. to a plunge in the value of that currency and a disruption in the lives of the people who depend on that currency. Well, the difference today is that we're doing it globally. Uh, beginning in 1971, uh, the world went off the last vestiges of the gold standard, which mm -hmm. used to control the amount of money that current or that countries can create. Um, and in that way, it limited inflation, it limited the ability of countries to devalue their currencies. Uh, well, no major country has that uh, limitation anymore. Everybody's operating with essentially an unlimited credit card. And human nature being what it is, we're abusing that power. Uh, the U.S., of course, is leading the way because we have the world's reserve currency, which means everybody wants dollars, uh, which gives us the, um, the ability to print 
or otherwise create new dollars with impunity. And we've done that on a vast scale over the past 30 years. So you can measure the amount of currency that's being created basically by the amount of debt that exists in the world. And global debt has been soaring in recent years. <clears throat> and it's leading to bigger and bigger asset price bubbles, which then burst and lead to bigger and bigger financial crises, which are met with even more money creation by the world's governments. So wherever you look, there's a financial crisis brewing. It's different in different systems. For instance, the, uh, the Japanese government has borrowed more money as a percent of GDP, in other words, in relation to the size of its economy, than any government has ever borrowed. And it is now so deeply in debt, <clears throat> excuse me, that there, there's really no way out for it other than, um, you know, gigantic devaluation. China has similar problems. Um, Europe has uh, different but similar problems in the sense that it's going to result in the same thing. And the U.S., of course, is leading the way down this path. So just maybe it's just me as self-employed, party-sided guy who makes a reasonable, decent amount of money. Does anyone have a clue how to pay off, pay off all those debts? Oh, yeah. I mean, historically, you just make your currency less valuable. And in that way, you can pay off your debts in easier to obtain currency. In other words, you, you, you mm -hmm. pay off the nominal amount of debt, but you're giving much less value in return for the, the money that you got originally. Um, that's how it's always been done, but that that leads to everyone losing faith in that currency and then dumping it. Once people find out that it's the explicit policy of their government to make their currency worth less each year, uh, they don't want to hold it anymore. As soon as they get paid, they convert it into real stuff of one kind or another, and that sends the price of the things they're buying through the roof. So you get inflation, you know, but, but, it, but it's not inflation due to an oversupply of currency, it's inflation due to a lack of faith, a collapse in confidence, if you will, in the currency itself. Um, in the Austrian School of Economics, that is called a crack-up boom. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what we're headed for. You know, that's how we'll get out from under this debt, but it'll cause a huge disruption in the lives of the people who have trusted the world's governments. You know, if you've got a big bank account in euros, for instance, or dollars or yen, and we devalue those currencies by 50% or 70%, you know, the value of your savings goes down commensurately. So your life is ruined because of the mistakes that governments around the world are making. Um, and traditionally, historically, that leads to political crises, which frequently, um, you know, give us some kind of a dictatorship. Uh, France did this after the French Revolution in the 1780s mm -hmm. and ended up with Napoleon and a whole Napoleon generation of European war. Yeah. <laughs> As a European guy, I can say he's not a Democrat. Yeah. yeah. He, he brought great insights. He really brought Europe forward, but the only thing he did not bring was democracy, literally. Yeah. And, and, and you had continuous war while he was in office, generally. Yes. And then... Um, Germany in the 1920s had a hyperinflation and then very soon after that got Adolf Hitler. Um, there are lots of other examples of the kind of linkage between financial crisis and then political crises that I'm talking about. And 
because this time it's global. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the disruption could be commensurately bigger. You know, it could be a much bigger deal than just one country screwing up as in the past. And that's what's really worrisome because um, where in the past one country might get a, a authoritarian government, what happens to the whole mm -hmm. world if we do this? You know, do we end up with you know a single United Nations-led dictatorship or something? I, I hope not, and that's not guaranteed to happen. But history says it's a very real possibility. Very scary. Okay, would you say that the uh, United Nations Security Council, which is permanent member, is a first step into that step, like a world dictator? Oh, I, I have no idea. You know, we have a lot of multinational organizations. Yeah. The, uh, the IMF now mm -hmm. uh, has its own currency, special drawing rights or SDRs, and conceivably uh, that could be the, um, the, the centerpiece of the next generation monetary system, which would put basically unlimited monetary power in the hands of a multinational organization, uh, mm -hmm. which you know could be the seeds of a, a kind of sort of dictatorship. You could also see it, as you said, through the United Nations. Uh, it could be through um, regional blocks turning into governments in the sense that, uh, for instance, in, in Europe now, they're talking about the United States of Europe, where um, a, a central government controls most of the main functions of the constituent states. Um, let uh, several blocks like that decide to merge in, in free trade agreements and political unions. And, and uh, because there's a crisis mm -hmm. in which they see that as the lesser of two evils, then then you get a, you know, a, huge regional or even global government out of it and you know these are not going to be friendly organizations when they um, when they evolve be because they're evolving in a crisis which means they, they're going to have to meet extreme circumstances with extreme restrictions so we'll see capital controls and limits on free speech and you know the things that um, people in most developed countries just take for granted as their god-given freedoms you know um, th those things are going to be at risk because the system is going to be so unstable that giving up those freedoms may be seen as the um, the the least disturbing alternative, or it may not even be a choice. You know, governments just might decree martial law and and not remove it for a generation. We, did, you know, you can't know, but. That's basically what they are doing at the moment in the Arabic world. I mean, Egypt has martial law, Morocco, Tunisia, and there's definitely a good reason. I mean, if I look at the news from Tunisia, it's not really great news. Bad people with machine guns walking on the beaches and shooting, but yeah, it seems to be that it's there already, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, and, and, and you see all the... Um the major countries that used to be considered mm -hmm. extremely free creeping in that direction. In, in the U.S., um, a lot of rules are being imposed that are, are kind of surprising and, and in a lot of ways unconstitutional. You know, the government spies on us with complete impunity right now. And after um, the 9-11 attacks, they were able to just arrest people, including American citizens, and indefinitely detain them. Uh, presumably, a lot of other stuff is going on behind the scenes. Um, in, in many other countries, you've got the central banks intervening in every single market. You know, what used to be considered free markets mm -hmm. are now considered um, tools of political policy. In other words, you manipulate the bond market yeah. in order to um, keep the economy growing 
or moving in a direction that you want. Or you uh, you own huge amounts of equities, which is the case in Switzerland and Japan and probably the U.S. I think I think secretly <laughs> we intervene in the stock market here, too. Well, one thing about that, that I'm just wondering about, because, as you said, the Swiss Central Bank has big investments. The Japanese Central Bank has big investments in uh, Japan. And if the Japanese continue this route, they will be the biggest shareholder in Japan in a f just a few years' time. But they all say they're going to exit when the economy is going to recover. How could they exit? Well, that's the question. How, how do you sell I ask. a, a I mean, big part yeah. of your stock market without crashing the stock market, right? Because that one of the things that's supporting the market now is the uh, expectation by most investors and traders that the government has your back. You know, the government is in there buying to keep prices mm -hmm. going up. So when that changes, and and you know when um, when we start tightening, we're going to find out. We're doing that in the bond markets right now, where central banks are starting to talk about selling the immense bond portfolios mm -hmm. that they accumulated while they were fighting the last financial crisis. Well, that's liable to cause another financial crisis because once everybody decides the government is now pushing prices down steadily by selling, why wouldn't you get out in front of that by selling yourself? And then you crash the markets. Um, and an even bigger reason why this is wrong is because capitalism, which is the, the only system we've ever come up with that actually increases the amount of societal wealth in a steady mm -hmm. way. Uh, the best system. Yeah, re it requires free markets. It requires the mm -hmm. price signaling mechanism of markets with free individuals pursuing their own interests um, and acting in their own interests, and in that way sending signals to capital allocators. In other words, if you've got money to invest, um, prices tell you what the smart investment is and which mm -hmm. factory you should build, which product line you should diversify into, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so um, we get more efficient when that's working well. But if governments are in the markets distorting price signaling, then the entrepreneurs of the world don't know how to invest. And you get massive, what they call misallocation of capital. In other words, bad ideas being funded. And the system doesn't grow anymore, you know. And, and so the the free market process of uh, capital being allocated efficiency and this leading to more good jobs and rapid mm -hmm. growth, that is paralyzed. And that's when you start getting the political crises that we talked about before. Because, uh, you know, and that's happening around the world, obviously. Every election now um, has um, people like Donald Trump here in the U.S. or um, Marine Le Pen in France who would be completely happy to tear the system out by the roots and start over. And they get a lot of votes because people are deeply dissatisfied with the status quo. And the reason the status quo isn't working is in large part because of all the debt we've taken on, on and all the market manipulation that we're doing. So we're creating the seeds for more contentious elections that, um, that bring in people who are, for instance, anti-Euro in Europe or um, anti-free trade in the US or very militaristic or whatever, you know, you get people who are um, not wedded to the status quo and are willing to make radical changes. But a lot of those radical changes are self-contradictory. You know, they're happening one way in one country and the opposite way in another country. And, and it makes the system extremely unstable which mm -hmm. then feeds back into finance. You know, people don't want to invest long-term in a system that they, they can't predict with any kind of accuracy even a few years out, let alone 20 or 30 years out for a new factory or whatever. Uh, and so productive investment just dries up. 
and we it, need it makes sense it makes yeah. sense i mean if i would look at my um, the money i'm investing if you get say me where to invest in for 10 years well definitely not the bond market not stocks not shares no mutual I funds no banks <laughs> No, no. You know, where do you put money now in the long term? Because and then if you're going to build a factory that's going to last a long time and, you, you know, you need it to generate positive cash flow for 30 years in order to um, to pay off the initial investment and all the work and everything that you put into it. And you have no idea what the world is going to be like 30 years hence, because even two or three years hence, even past the next election cycle, um, you can't predict anything. So you just don't invest that money. You know, go buy a yacht, go have fun for uh, um, for the next few years. Well, that's happening in a lot of places. You know, you've got huge amounts of money. Rich people are buying fine art, and they're mm -hmm. buying Bitcoin, and they're buying London penthouses, and and you've got these huge storage centers in major global airports where the rich people just store their stuff outside the jurisdiction of any individual country. Uh, that money could Smart. be flowing into factories, <laughs> but, but people are afraid to, to yeah. invest in factories. Or you've got corporations buying back their shares rather than investing in new productive equipment, right? And that's, that's mm -hmm. what's propping yeah. up the U.S. stock market is we've lowered interest rates to the point where it's, it's a cash flow positive deal for corporations to buy back their stock and then not have to pay dividends on that stock. So they do that. It pushes up the price of the stock, but that money would otherwise maybe have been invested in new productive capacity, and that's not happening. So the system stops working, and that's where we are now. We're in the um, you know the intermediate stages of capitalism dying around the world, and what comes next is going to be very dark and very scary. And what will happen, if especially the U.S. dollar will collapse and lose its global reserve status? You see, China is now accepting payments for oil which are paid back by gold. So it's just a small bite of the global reserve status, but it's a beginning. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, because the US... What's with the dollar? Oh, yeah. The, the dollar is at extreme risk And here. the US. Yeah, and because yeah. and, we can't pay our own bills. We have to borrow mm -hmm. money to, to, to meet the government budget and to support the, you know, the manipulations in the private sector. Uh, and do that now because everybody wants dollars. You know, you can print as many dollars as you mm -hmm. want to and just send them out into the world and people will give us real stuff for those dollars. But that also led us to abuse the privilege of having the world's reserve currency. You know, we built this trillion dollar a year military empire that we used to bully the rest of the world. And other would-be powers, obviously, understandably, don't like that. You know, China and Russia are deeply frustrated with the way the U.S. behaves in the world, as, as are you know, most other countries. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that they're taking steps to remove that, what, they, uh, you know, what used to be called the exorbitant privilege of reserve currency status from the U.S. Uh, and this is just beginning, but it, once it really gets going, then the world won't need as many dollars. Because right now, um, you, you need dollars if you're going to buy oil, for instance. And mm -hmm. if you need dollars, if you're going to engage in most kinds of international trade. Well, if you don't need those dollars anymore, you'll just sell those dollars, right? You'll convert them into other stuff. And that downward pressure on the value of the U.S. dollar uh, could accelerate to the point where nobody wants to hold dollars anymore. You know, we'll go from everybody wanting dollars to nobody wanting dollars. And then... You know, in the U.S., we're in trouble because <laughs> we can't live within <laughs> our means, you know. So 
um, we, we would it, see um, the, the government's finances just crater. It would be terrifying to watch, but it's very possibly coming in the next few years. But is it not simply the solution for the U.S.? Simply live within your means. Don't raise the debt ceiling, lower the debt ceiling. Even well, if it's just a dollar a day. Yeah, I mean, that's yes. the that's the obvious solution, but we're programmed by the past 30 years to uh, to just spend whatever we want mm-hmm. on anything we want. And that this whole generation of politicians have never had to say no to major constituencies. So they, they don't know how to do it. Uh, usually the market imposes that kind of discipline on a, an undisciplined system eventually. And that's what will happen to us. We'll have a gigantic crisis and we'll have to, mm-hmm. at the bottom of the crisis, figure out how to live within our means. But uh, one, one thing we won't be able to maintain going forward is this gigantic military empire. Another will be the cradle to grave entitlement state that we build up at the same time. You know, we can't have both of those things. And it's arguable that we can't have either of them going forward. So the process of us coming to grips with the fact that we're, you know, the U.S. is 5% of the world's population. We can't dominate the global economy and the global geopolitical system forever because we're, you know, we're just a tiny sliver of the world. There's no way that we can accumulate the resources needed to maintain dominance in every aspect of global life. It's just unnatural if the rest of the world is going to develop and uh, which is what we really should want. You know, we should want Europe to uh, to become even richer and freer than it is now. We should want China to become a first world country. We should want Russia to become stable and rich. And we Mm -hmm. should want Japan to figure out its demographic issues and uh, lead the world in robotics going forward. All of those are good things. Uh, But they also bring with them the the relative diminution of U.S. power. You know, we can't have everybody else become richer and freer and more powerful um, and still dominate them. Right. You know, we we have to become Mm -hmm. one of several major players in the world rather than the dominant player in the world. Um, but we're we're fighting that and we're destined to lose. But the process of losing is probably going to be incredibly messy. And from one of the things that my that was learned to me about investing was when there's a messy and there are big problems, you can buy things cheap. So it's a really cynical and sarcastic way to think about it. But how can we benefit from the collapse of the dollar and well, this change? Well, yeah, I mean, that's see, that's all that's just left in, for us to think general. about. Yeah, sure. Just in general, not the individual thing, but just yeah. in basics. What yeah. do do? Well, see, we can't fix the political system. We can't fix mm-hmm. the economic system. All you and I and your listeners can do is focus on our family, try to protect ourselves mm-hmm. and our families from the stuff that's coming. And historically, we've, we've got a lot of good advice um, coming to us from what countries did in the past and what worked and didn't work then. You know, if, if um, your country is destroying the value of your currency, then you get out of that currency. In other words, don't hold a big bank account in your local currency because that's going to lose mm-hmm. value dramatically. Do shift into real assets. In other words, farmland tends to hold its value over long periods of time. Um, Oil wells and other high-quality energy assets also have have done okay because they're real. You know, they have actual Mm -hmm. utility that doesn't change 
when we change the you know the unit of measure that we're using <laughs> in the stock market. And then of course gold and silver. They're forms of real money that have been money for 3,000 years and are hard to get. You, you have to dig mm -hmm. gold and silver out of the ground and that's laborious and, and difficult and expensive. And because of that, the supply of those monetary metals only goes up by one or 2% a year which means they tend to hold their value because they, they can't be inflated away. You know, you can't make so much more of them that they lose their value. So historically, they've bought about the same amount of life's necessities as they did a decade previous or a thousand years previous. You know, in, in the Roman Empire, uh, a, an ounce of gold would buy you a pretty nice men's toga. And mm -hmm. today, an ounce of gold will buy you a, a decent men's suit. Uh, same thing with most of other uh, of life's other necessities, and, and mm -hmm. that will probably be true going forward. So if you buy precious metals, you'll tend to maintain your purchasing power. In other words, your your real wealth will stay the same while everything is going crazy around you. Um, other things that you should be doing for for the coming crazy times is to to try to protect your career as well as possible by making yourself, for instance, um, indispensable at work. Don't just show mm -hmm. up, do your job and go home. Figure out what the company needs and get good at those things and, and offer your um, services to your bosses um, mm -hmm. on the things that they desperately need to have taken care of. You know? And in that way, you increase the odds that you'll be kept on when a lot of other coworkers are being laid off when things really get crazy. Uh, and the final piece of this puzzle, I think, is to uh, embed yourself as completely as possible in your community. In other words, make as many connections locally as you can, because mm -hmm. those are the people that you're going to depend on when the big systems don't work as well as they used to for a while. Uh, so what you know, whatever it takes to embed yourself in the community, uh, join organizations that help other people. Um, be, be part of a church or more than one church and uh, generally get to know your neighbors um, as, as well as you can because the time will come when those connections are increasingly valuable. So add it all up, you know, be, be as indispensable at work as possible. Uh, shift your finances from financial assets, government bonds and, and currency to real assets like precious metals and, and well-chosen pieces of real estate and uh, embed yourself in your community and and then you'll you know you'll get through this at least better than you would have you know there's no guarantee that uh, everybody comes through this unscathed but the people that take the steps now to make themselves resilient will be the ones who mm -hmm. tend to do best okay that sounds like a really good advice and from that side i would like to thank you for your time and for the interview yeah, and that's it, and more of it, and more of these great things tomorrow, and talk to you then.